Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 149 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up in this week's episode, we have news of a data breach at Carnival Cruises. We then have news of an embarrassing data breach from the UK Trade Department which has revealed the existence of a secret cabinet office triage unit, which looks at freedom of information requests. We then have news of a data breach at Gately. And we then have news that Kate Box Holdings has had a data breach. We then look at news that a UK government task force is proposing changes to UK GDPR. We then look at EU data adequacy and that there is a new data adequacy decision being pursued on behalf of South Korea. And then following on from an article we ran last week, we have news that the CJEU is being asked for guidance on when and if immaterial damages should be awarded for GDPR breaches. Staying with the CJEU, we have news that they've confirmed the possibility of parallel GDPR investigations. So instead of an investigation only being able to be held by the lead authority within the EU, you could have several investigations in several different countries running concurrently. We then travel to Scotland, where NHS Scotland is facing criticism over its data lock project. And then the ICO, Elizabeth Denham, gives her opinion on live facial recognition. We then have news that in Germany, the IAB Tech Labs is facing a lawsuit regarding real-time bidding and advertising. And then finally this week, And then finally this week, we travel to America and use a data breach at CVS Health. So as always, a wide range of articles for you this week. We hope that you find the information useful and informative. As always, if you have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive and wherever possible we incorporate your suggestions for improvements into the show. But unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, it's not always possible for us to respond to each piece of feedback individually. Stay home, stay safe. We begin this week with news of a data breach at Carnival Cruises. Carnival Cruises, one of the world's largest cruise ship operators, has confirmed it suffered another data breach in mid-March of this year. Carnival Cruises detected unauthorised third-party access to limited portions of its information technology systems on the 19th of March, making this incident the fourth data breach that Carnival has suffered in the last 18 months, following attacks in March, August and December 2020. It's understood that hackers access personal and health information of guests, employees and crew members of those on the Carnival Cruise Line, Holland America Line and Princess Cruises. It is unclear how many customers or employees were impacted by the breach. In a data breach notification letter sent to its customers, Carnival Cruises said the impacted information includes data routinely collected during the guest experience and travel booking process or through the course of employment or providing services to the company, including COVID or other safety testing. The information may include names, addresses, phone numbers, passport numbers, dates of birth, health information and in some limited instances additional personal information such as social security or national identification numbers. Carnival stated there was a low likelihood of the breach data being misused and has offered to those affected free credit check monitoring and identity theft detection for 18 months. The company has also advised recipients to review their account statements and credit history and to be alert for any possible follow-up phishing attacks using the stolen information. If we receive any further update on this from Carnival Cruises or from the Information Commissioner's Office, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. 
Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse Thursday, 4 p.m. UK time. The UK's Department of International Trade had an embarrassing data breach this week, which revealed how the Ministry triages Freedom of Information Act requests based in part on the identity of the applicant, which would be a breach of Freedom of Information rules. Over two weeks, emails with attachments that contained the full caseload of the Department's Freedom of Information team were sent in error to a Politico journalist. In a subsequent email to the journalist from the Department highlighting the mistake, an official pointed out that the documents are marked with the government's security classification of official sensitive, intended for sight of certain internal staff at the Department only. They said they would fulfil their legal reporting obligations to the Information Commissioner's Office, yet more than four days later, the ICO has said it's not received a breach report from the Trade Department. An ICO spokesperson said public bodies must notify the ICO within 72 hours of becoming aware of a personal data breach unless it does not pose a risk to people's rights and freedoms. The Trade Department argues the breach does not meet the threshold for reporting. The documents confirm that some freedom of information requests received by the Department are referred to a clearinghouse in the Cabinet Office, which centralises decisions on how to handle each request. Earlier this week, a tribunal in a three-year-long court case brought by the ICO and the campaign that's overturned the Cabinet Office's attempt to withhold information about the clearinghouse unit and criticised it for a profound lack of transparency about its operation. The judgment highlighted that the clearinghouse holds a list of identifying journalists and campaigners making Freedom of Information requests. This is significant because Freedom of Information applications are meant to be dealt with in an applicant-blind fashion without reference to the identity of the applicant. The documents sent in error to Politico do not contain names, but do identify where the request came from, including references to the Guardian newspaper, Politico, the BBC, as well as the Office of the Shadow Trade Secretary, Emily Thornbury, and the NGO, Campaign Against Arms Trade. The Trade Department data breach shows the Clearinghouse working to block the release of documents to journalists against the advice of the Trade Department's information officers. The Trade Department said the case work revealed in the data breach complies with ICO guidance and FOI law, it did not provide a comment but said the breach was due to human error and they would take steps to stop it from reoccurring. Shadow Trade Secretary Emily Thornbury said she was used to not having her questions answered by politicians in power, but what we are seeing here is something much more dangerous and corrosive to our democracy. The breach reveals evidence, she said, of a government department breaching freedom of information guidelines, categorising information according to its sensitivity and the person requesting it, and taking advice on handling requests from the secret cabinet office clearinghouse. She went on to say how the Trade Department's information requests are being handled is not being done in the interest of transparency. What we need to get to the bottom of is whether they are being done to circumvent or delay government obligations under the law, she added. Transparency campaigners said they are deeply concerned about what the data breach reveals. The handling of FOIs should be blind to who is asking, but there is a deeply concerning trend of successive administrations blocking requests from certain people or concerning topics deemed too sensitive, said Steve Goodrich, Senior Research Manager at Transparency International UK. He went on to say Whitehall has repeatedly thwarted the public's right to access information held by public bodies set out in law. The UK government should stop wasting time and taxpayers' money opposing legitimate freedom of information requests and do what it's required to do by the law, he said. The department requested that the journalists who received the documents delete them permanently. It is understood that Politico has complied with this request. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Staying in the UK now, and Gately, the UK-based legal and professional services group, has revealed that client data was accessed during a cyber attack. 
In the security alert published this week, the company said it took some systems offline after detecting unauthorized activity on its network. It understood that Gately has since re-established core systems to enable them to continue to work and communicate with their clients, suppliers and intermediaries. In a statement from the company, they said, Based on the information gathered to date, we are confident that our security controls were effective in limiting the impact of the incident, which has been confined to a very small part of our data store, approximately 0.2% of our data. Gately did not elaborate on the nature of the data that had been impacted. In a stock market announcement, the group said the impacted data was traced quickly and deleted from the location to which it had been downloaded, and there is no evidence currently to suggest the data has been further disseminated. Law enforcement agencies and the UK Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, have been notified, Gately said. Rob Waldy, CEO of Gately, said, I am grateful that the prompt actions of our IT team have limited the impact of this incident and enabled us to resume our business operations swiftly. We are continuing to work with specialist cybersecurity professionals to investigate the incident and identify any parties that may have been affected, and we will, of course, contact anyone affected in due course. In the meantime, we are restoring all of our systems in a safe and secure manner as quickly as possible, and do not expect at this stage any significant disruption to our day-to-day activities or financial performance. Gately, which was founded in Birmingham in 1808, comprises nine business units offering services related to commercial and corporate law, dispute resolution, banking, pensions and property investment. The group has 13 UK offices and one in Dubai, and reported revenues of £110 million in 2020. If we get any further update on this from Gately or the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800 808 5312. As we were going to broadcast, news was breaking of a data breach at UK-based tape maker and retailer Cake Box Holdings PLC. It's understood that the data breach occurred back in 2020 but it's only just come to light and that it might have compromised personal information. On news of the incident, shares of the company fell by more than 8%. Catebox says it has taken appropriate steps to investigate the incident and will be producing a further statement in due course. When we have that statement, we will of course bring it to you here on the GPL Weekly Show. A UK government task force chaired by Sir Ian Duncan Smith, MP, has published a wish list of regulatory proposals it wants to see adopted by a post-Brexit administration here in the UK. Also sitting on the task force with Sir Ian Duncan Smith MP are Theresa Villas MP and George Freeman MP. In a 130-page report by the task force on innovation, growth and regulatory reform, informally known as TIGA, the report's authors announced that the pace of global technological innovation is creating huge new opportunities and challenges for regulation, from AI to space, genetics to autonomous vehicles. The paper talks about stripping out unnecessary red tape, introducing rules that are less onerous for people and organisations, and instead creating a new regulatory environment designed to promote growth and innovation, which it claimed to have been stifled by GDPR. I think it's important to stress, though, that the report is just that, a report, a collection of ideas and aspirations from one particular group of MPs. However, its timing is unfortunate, of course, given that we are still waiting a judgment on adequacy for GDPR from the European Union. And as we go to broadcast, we have exactly 10 days for that adequacy notice to be issued. Otherwise, we lapse into being a third country. And doubtless we will cover that in more detail in the GDPR Weekly Show next week, if 
we've not received an adequacy decision by then, or if we have received an adequacy decision, then what that means, we'll cover that next week too. Anyway, back to this report. And they say that their feeling is that GDPR regulations overwhelm people with consent requests and complexity they cannot understand while unnecessarily restricting the use of data for worthwhile purposes. It says, We therefore propose to give stronger rights and powers to consumers and citizens, place proper responsibility on companies using data, and free up data for innovation in the public interest. GDPR is already out of date and needs to be revised for artificial intelligence and growth sectors if we want to enable innovation in the UK. The report adds that GDPR aims to give people control over their personal data, but rarely does so. In many cases, it results in quite literally a tick box exercise. The overemphasis on consent has led to people being bombarded with complex consent requests. An illustration of this is the cookie consent banner that appears every time you visit a website. Both behavioural science and common sense tell you that putting a tick to a set box in front of someone at the point they want to access a website or service does not generate genuine informed consent. It just means people are likely to take a set without thinking. Instead, the authors suggest replacing GDPR with new legislation, one based on third-party data trusts or data fiduciaries. The UK implemented GDPR, which is aimed at harmonising data protection rules and protections across the single market through the 2018 Data Protection Act. After Brexit, the Data Protection Act 2018 is now read with UK GDPR, which is clause for clause almost exactly the same as the EU GDPR in order to preserve the flow of data with EU trading partners. It is worth noting that in the whole of this 130-page document, there's no mention at all about data adequacy. We don't know whether this report is going to actually have any impact on government policy. As we said before, its timing is perhaps unfortunate, but if there is any further updates on it, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. The EU Commission has started a new data adequacy process, but not for us here in the UK, but for the Republic of South Korea. The Commission has found that South Korea ensures an essentially equivalent level of protection to the one guaranteed under GDPR. This news is good for South Korea, as it will support a trade relationship worth nearly 90 billion euros. In South Korea, the processing of personal data is governed by the Personal Information Protection Act, PIPA, which provides similar principles, safeguards, individual rights and obligations as EU law, and in 2020 additional powers of investigation and enforcement were granted to the Independent Data Protection Authority, the Personal Information Protection Commission. These reforms further align the jurisdictions in the protection of personal data and the rights of individuals. It's understood that during the negotiations on adequacy with South Korea, several additional safeguards will be incorporated into the PIPC that were agreed that will increase the protection of personal data processed in South Korea by enhancing obligations around transparency, sensitive data and onward data transfer. Rather like UK adequacy, this is not yet a done deal. The Commission has passed a draft decision to the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB, and must wait for its opinion, following which the Commission will seek the approval of a committee composed of representatives of all the EU member states. Only once these two steps are completed can the Commission proceed to adopt the adequacy decision. We will, of course, follow this as it moves its way through the EU process and bring you updates in future editions of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. In last week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, we brought you news about how a Dutch court had ruled on what could and could not be considered for non-material damages under GDPR. The Dutch are not the only country to be considering this. 
the Austrian Supreme Court has referred key questions regarding non-material damages for data protection infringements under Article 82 of GDPR to the European Court of Justice, the CJEU, for a preliminary ruling under Article 267. So far, a number of claims for non-material damages based on violations of GDPR have been dismissed by courts in Austria and Germany and, of course, the Netherlands because the plaintiffs did not allege or prove any noticeable immaterial impairment. The Austrian Supreme Court makes reference to a decision of the German Federal Constitutional Court dated January 14, 2021, in which the court overturned the decision by the Joslar Local Court. The German Federal Constitutional Court ruled that the Joslar Local Court would have had to submit significant questions about damages to the CJEU before making a decision in the final instance. While the Austrian Supreme Court disagreed with the finding of the German Federal Constitutional Court, it considered it helpful to refer the question to the CJEU in order to ensure a harmonised application of the law across the EU. The questions that it's asked the CJEU to make a ruling on are Is the mere breach of the provisions of GDPR in and of itself sufficient for the award of damages? In addition to the principles of effectiveness and equivalence, does EU law impose further requirements that national courts must observe when assessing damages under Article 82 of GDPR? And does non-material damage require an impairment or other consequence of the infringement of at least some weight that goes beyond the annoyance caused by the infringement? Now this is important not just in the EU but here in the UK as well because it's likely our courts would follow the guidance from the CJEU. And so the CJEU's decision on the questions regarding the prerequisites for damages is likely to have significant implications for ongoing and future proceedings for damages claims under Article 82 of GDPR. Now, of course, experience shows that CJEU decisions are notoriously difficult to predict. However, the judges have tended to side with consumers rather than companies on data protection issues in recent years. Cases such as SREMS 2, which we've referred to a number of times, of course, here on GDPR Weekly Show, show that the judges are not deterred from making data protection-friendly decisions, even if such decisions raise significant questions of practical implementation. Now, to part of the reason for this action is that the number of claims for damages for pain and suffering and tort proceedings for damages under Article 82 of GDPR just continues to go up and up every year. The fact that the CJEU will now rule on the central issues of immaterial GDPR damages to further encourage claimants, consumer rights organisations and indeed litigation assessors to assert corresponding claims and seek to enforce them in tort. It's thought that torts within the EU member states may consider suspending ongoing proceedings if the decision depends on the questions submitted to the CJEU. This is obviously going to be a fundamental reading from the CJEU, so we will keep a close eye on it, and as soon as there are any updates, we will bring them to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800-808-5312. Staying with the CJEU, the CJEU have said that there are circumstances in which data protection regulators that are not the lead supervisory authority for a business can legitimately pursue legal action against those companies under GDPR. An example they give is where lead supervisory authorities fail to investigate concerns the other authorities have raised or do not cooperate to the extent required under GDPR's one-stop-shop mechanism or where there's a need for urgent action to protect the interests of data subjects in which case the urgency procedure that sits alongside the one-stop-shop mechanism applies. The GDPR's one-stop-shop mechanism of regulation enforcement was designed to enable businesses operating across the EU to deal with just one data protection authority instead of 27 different authorities. 
However, the regulation makes provision for the cooperation of data protection authorities in cases where the latest infringement occurs in more than one jurisdiction. In such cases, the lead supervisory authority must enter into dialogue with the other authorities where data subjects are impacted by the data processing issue. While the responsibility for investigating the latest infringement sits with the lead authority, GDPR gives other national data protection authorities scope to input to the inquiry and to raise relevant and reasoned objections against proposed decisions of the lead authority and in cases where consensus on a final decision cannot be reached, of course, the EDPB, the European Data Protection Board, is the final arbiter. In its ruling, the CJEU confirmed that although it is the rule that a one-stop shop system of coordination and consistency applies, there are exceptions that allow non-lead supervisory authorities to unilaterally pursue redress for alleged data protection failings before the courts in their own country in respect of business cross-border data processing activities. In those exceptional cases, the CJEU said businesses cannot escape action taken by a non-lead authority by virtue of having their main establishment or another establishment in another EU member state. This, of course, could have major implications for those really large tech companies like Facebook, Twitter and others whose lead authority is the DPC in Ireland, but where other data protection authorities across Europe have become frustrated by the lack of speed in the DPC's investigations. If you're a regular listener to the Digipal Weekly Show, then you probably remember that back in episode 145, we brought you news about the NHS data grab by NHS England. And then last week, we brought you details that the deadline to opt out of that data grab had been extended until the 1st of September. Well, this week, there's been concern about a similar project in Scotland. NHS Scotland, of course, being separate from NHS England under devolution. It's understood that more than 1.1 million people in the Lothians, Borders and Fife could see their medical records analysed by researchers for the benefit of private firms as part of a project dubbed Data Lock. Although the project, which is managed by the University of Edinburgh and NHS Lothian and funded as part of the South East Scotland City Region deal, is not set to become fully operational until late 2022, it's understood that the Data Lock already combines different data sets about patients. The stored information includes data on visits to hospitals and primary care facilities, as well as records from some local GP surgeries. NHS Scotland data on prescriptions, mental health treatment and COVID-19 shielding status are also available through the project. NHS Lothian insisted it would never act to compromise patient data, but even though the business plan for the project names huge pharmaceutical firms as potential industry collaborators and boasts it will attract £138 million in research income, the Health Board says patients should not be given a choice about whether their health data is added to the lock of information. The Data Lock website says it is featuring the Ask Questions section. There is no patient opt-out and this is in line with the legal basis for processing. It goes on to use an argument made by an unnamed former Chief Medical Officer to justify why the project does not allow people an opt-out. According to a spokesperson for the University of Edinburgh, any personal data collected will be anonymised. The University of Edinburgh's press office did not confirm how many people had already had their medical records held in data lock, but the project website claims it has already supported a number of important projects investigating COVID-19. Lothian's MSP Alex Cole-Hamilton said, No one who goes to hospital or to the GP seeking medical treatment is expecting their data to be farmed out to researchers. At a minimum, there should be a clear statement setting out who will be able to access the data and a mechanism for people to opt out if they don't want their data shared. In the past, SNP ministers have been keen to use NHS records as a basis for storing personal data about everyone in Scotland. Alongside privacy campaigners, Scottish Liberal Democrats have defeated previous attempts to assemble massive data sets loaded with private personal information. 
In an era in which cybercrime and the exploitation of personal information is rampant, there are clearly serious risks attached to projects such as this. A similar but little-known project, Dubspire, is already operational in Scotland. It allows GP practices to share data with NHS Scotland and provides a national database that may be accessed by researchers from outside the NHS. Unlike the data lock, patients can opt out at this data share project by transferring their GP or by using a form on the Spire website. Dr Tracy Gillies, Medical Director of NHS Lothian, said, Every day, medical research and innovation is carried out by researchers across the UK using data that has been recorded during the patient's treatment and is processed to ensure their identities are not revealed. This practice, which analyses symptoms, treatments and outcomes, has allowed great strides and advances to be made in developing life-saving treatments in many specialities, including cardiac care and, of course, also COVID-19. Without this research, breakthrough treatments and vaccines would be impossible. Gillis added, DataLock's purpose is to enable these data-driven health and social care innovations to improve the health and lives of the nation's population. These activities are entirely in the public interest. Patient data is not being sold to private organisations, nor is it leaving the control of the NHS. Access to extracts of data provided to NHS service managers and medical researchers approved by the NHS Lothian's Caldicott Guardian and under strict controls. The data is identifying information removed and sits in a secure IT environment. NHS Lothian takes patient confidentiality extremely seriously and has a well-deserved reputation for robust governance processes. We would never act to compromise patient data. However, it went on to reiterate that it has no plans to offer patients the opportunity to opt out. A Scottish Government spokesperson said patient data is confidential and any suggestion it is for sale in Scotland or is being used for commercial purposes is categorically untrue. We take patient confidentiality extremely seriously and expect all processes in personal data to be fair, lawful and secure. They said the aim of the not-for-profit data lot project was to further medical and NHS research to help deliver better services. Any data provided by GPs as part of the project has identifying information removed in line with GDPR, so it cannot be associated with any individual and is subject to rigorous scrutiny to ensure that the data is used fairly, lawfully and securely. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse Thursday, 4pm UK time. The Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, has warned over reckless and inappropriate use of live facial recognition in public places. Publishing an opinion today on the use of this biometric surveillance in public to set out what is dubbed as the rules of engagement, the Information Commissioner, Elizabeth Denham, also noted that a number of investigations already undertaken by our office into planned applications of the tech have found problems in all cases. I am deeply concerned about the potential for live facial recognition technology to be used inappropriately, excessively, or even recklessly, when sensitive personal data is collected on a mass scale without people's knowledge, choice or control, the impacts could be significant, she warned. Users we've seen included addressing public safety concerns and creating biometric profiles to target people with personalised advertising. It is telling that none of the organisations involved in our completed investigations were able to fully justify the processing, and of those systems that went live, none were fully compliant with the requirements of data protection law. All the organisations choose to stop or not proceed with the use of live facial recognition. Unlike CCTV, live facial recognition and its algorithms can automatically identify who you are and infer sensitive details about you. It can be used to instantly profile you to serve up personalised adverts or match your image against known shoplifters as you do your weekly grocery shop. In future, there's potential to overlay CCTV cameras with live facial recognition and even to combine it with social media data or other big data systems. The use of biometric technologies to identify the individuals remotely sparks major human rights concerns, including around privacy and the risk of discrimination. 
For now, those seeking to implement live facial recognition in the UK must comply with provisions in the UK's Data Protection Act 2018 and the UK General Data Protection Regulation, UK GDPR, per the ICO opinion, including data protection principles set out in UK GDPR Article 5, including lawfulness, fairness, transparency, purpose limitation, data minimisation, storage limitation, security and accountability. Controllers must also enable individuals to exercise their rights. Elizabeth Denham went on to say, Organisations will need to demonstrate high standards of governance and accountability from the outset, including being able to justify the use of live facial recognition is fair, necessary and proportionate in each specific context in which it is deployed. They need to demonstrate that less intrusive techniques won't work. These are important standards that require robust assessment. Organisations will also need to understand and assess the risks of using a potentially intrusive technology and its impact on people's privacy and their lives. For example, how issues around accuracy and bias could lead to misidentification and the damage or detriment that comes with that. The timing of the publication of the ICO's opinion on live facial recognition is interesting in light of wider concerns about the direction of UK travel on data protection and privacy. In conclusion, Elizabeth Denham said, It is not my role to endorse or ban the technology, but while this technology is developing and not widely deployed, we have an opportunity to ensure it does not expand without due regard for data protection. She says UK law sets a high bar to justify the use of live facial recognition and its algorithms in places where we shop, socialise or gather. Without trust, the benefits the technology may offer are lost, she said. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Part of the Internet Advertising Bureau, the IAB Tech Labs, based in New York, is being taken to court in Germany by the Irish Council for Civil Liberties in a piece of privacy litigation that's targeted at the high-speed online ad auction process known as real-time bidding. The driving force behind the lawsuit is Dr Johnny Ryan, a former ad tech insider turned whistleblower who's now a senior fellow at the ICCL, who has dubbed real-time bidding the biggest data breach of all time. He points to the IAB Tech Lab's audience taxonomy documents, which provide codes for what can be extremely sensitive information that's being gathered about internet users based on their browsing activities such as political affiliation, medical conditions, household income or even whether they may be parent to a special needs child. The lawsuit contends that other industry documents, such as the ad auction system, confirm there are no technical measures to limit what companies can do with people's data, nor who they might pass it on to. The lack of security inherent to the real-time bidding process also means other entities not directly involved in the ad tech bidding chain could potentially intercept people's information, when it should, on the contrary, be protected from unauthorised access as per GDPR. Ryan and others have been filing complaints against real-time bidding issues for years, arguing the system breaches a core principle of GDPR, which requires that personal data be processed in a manner that ensures appropriate security, including protection against unauthorised or unlawful processing against accidental loss, and which they contend simply isn't possible given how real-time bidding works. The problem is that Europe's data protection agencies have failed to act, which is why Ryan, via the ICCL, has decided to take the more direct route of filing a lawsuit. There aren't many data protection authorities around the Union that haven't received evidence of what I think is the biggest data breach of all time, but it started with the UK and Ireland, neither of which took, I think it's fair to say, any action, he said. They both say they're doing things, but nothing has changed. I want to take the most efficient route to protection of people's rights around data. Ryan says the Irish Data Protection Commission, the DPC, which is Google's lead data supervisor in the EU, has still not sent a statement of issues relating to the real-time bidding complaint he lodged with them back in 2018. 
A similar complaint about real-time bidding lodged with the UK's Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, also led to a lawsuit being filed last year, albeit in that case it was against the watchdog itself for failing to take any action. The lawsuit has been filed in Germany as Ryan says they've been able to establish that IAB Tech Labs, which is New York-based and has no official establishment in Europe, has representation, a consultancy it hired, that's based in the country. Hence they believe there is a clear route to litigate the case in Hamburg. He said he fully accepts that the case may well end up at the European Court of Justice and that could take a few years. A spokesperson for IAB Tech Lab said, IAB Tech Lab will continue to deliver on its mission to drive global technology standards that enable growth and trust in the digital media ecosystem. This mission has never been more timely or important. At this time, we've not been served with any documents in this case. We will review the allegations in conjunction with our legal advisers and, if appropriate, will respond in due course. And finally this week to America, where a misconfiguration in a CVS Health cloud database left over a billion records exposed. The database, which was roughly 240 gigabytes of data, was not password protected, meaning anyone who knew where to look could find the records held within. It's understood that a total of 1,148,327,940 records were within the database. The database contained production records that exposed visitor ID, session ID and device information, i.e. iPhone, Android, iPad, etc. Worryingly, these files also gave threat actors a clear understanding of configuration settings, where data is stored and a blueprint of how the login service operates from the back end. Researchers also found multiple records of visitor search histories including medications, COVID-19 vaccines and other CVS products. After discovering the unprotected database on March 21st, researchers immediately sent a responsible disclosure notice to CVS Health, the company restricted public access the same day. In a statement, CVS Health said, We were able to reach out to our vendor and they took immediate action to remove the database. Protecting the private information of our customers and our company is a high priority and it's important to note that the database did not contain any personal information of our customers, members or patients. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com or phone us on 0800-808-5312. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurance production. Until next time, bye-bye.